Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 27th of March 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurtz speaking in the series, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, Jesus and the Temple. Okay, thin places, thin places. That's the term that's used for a place where you seem to be able to walk between two worlds. The world that we experience most obviously, and that spiritual world that we call heaven. The term thin places seems to have originated in Britain before it became Christian, with the Celts using it to describe places like the windswept Isle of Iona, where they sensed a deeper spiritual presence than they found elsewhere. And when Britain became Christian, the concept of thin places wasn't abandoned. It was incorporated into the spirituality of the communities that grew up often in the far reaches of this country and which sought a closer communion with God. And I think all of us have our own experiences of this. Finding ourselves in a place, maybe on the top of a mountain, maybe out on a beautiful lake or looking over a beautiful lake, maybe being out in a boat at sea, where something different from our normal experience means that we have a greater sense of God. Often it's when we're on holiday, away from the usual busyness of life, and perhaps therefore more open to spiritual experiences than we are in normal time. And the most important thin place for first century Jews was the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the place that represented the meeting point for Jews between heaven and earth. Jews didn't believe that heaven was far away. They believed that they were surrounded by the heavenly realities, although in normal times that remained elusive. It remained out of touch. But the temple was the place where God's presence could be found, they believed, on earth. And that's why it was so important for Jews who would travel there for major festivals like the Passover. They would come there to make sacrifices to God and to be affirmed as God's people. So what was King David's role in the temple? We've been thinking a lot about King David recently in our talks. Well, King David's role in terms of the temple was a rather ambiguous one. On the one hand, David was the one who prepared for the building of the temple by bringing the Ark of the Covenant or organising for the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolised God's presence, to be brought to Jerusalem. David was the one who established Jerusalem as Israel's capital and he brought the Ark of the Covenant there, symbolising God's presence. But when David expressed to God his wish to build a house, in other words, a temple for God, God declared that he had something rather different in mind. God rather mysteriously said that he would instead build a house for David. Now, the physical temple was eventually built by David's own son Solomon. But God had made it clear in that interaction with David that he was set on doing something a little bit different, doing something through a people rather than simply through a place. And that's because people and place were both meant to witness 
to the presence of God. In the Psalms, the hymn book of the Old Testament, we see loads about God dwelling within the temple. And we see the belief that the nations beyond Israel would one day be led to God's presence there. And that's why the temple of Jesus' day had what was known as the court of the Gentiles. There's a plan of the temple, and the court of the Gentiles is the big, wide-open space around the main building in the middle. It's a vast area, and the court of the Gentiles was meant to be there in readiness for that event. Not because there were loads of Gentiles worshipping the God of Israel at this time, but in readiness for that event where one day all the Gentile nations would come and worship the God of Israel. That's what the court of the Gentiles was there to symbolise. But a crucial part of this was not just having a nice building, it was Israel itself acting as the living presence of God. Israel herself being what Exodus 19 calls a kingdom of priests. That was what Israel's calling was to be, to be a people who lived in the presence of God so strongly that other people saw that and wanted some of it and were attracted into God's presence because of the way that the people of Israel lived. And if Israel was meant to be like that, then her kings, David, Solomon, and so on, they were meant to be like that even more. They were meant to be shining examples of what it meant to live in the presence of God. And when you think about it, there's nothing more powerful than a thin space, a connection between heaven and earth being embodied. Think about our own lives and how often we actually experience God's presence through people. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Mothering Sunday is a good day to remind ourselves of that. Since the connection between parenthood and a deeper sense of God is actually a very strong one. The overwhelming reason why people joined this church, and the overwhelming reason that most people who join this church for the first time are young parents, not all of them, but overwhelmingly our largest growth is of young parents, is because, I believe, of what I like to call the God moment that occurs when people's first child is born. People who often haven't thought that much about church or God for about 20 years are often remarkably softened by the deeply spiritual experience of new life occurring right in front of them. And it happens just as often when children arrive by adoption. Children enter into someone's life and they have a deeper spiritual sense of God. That's the presence of God and people's experience of it arriving in an embodied form. And a lot of what we're trying to do at this 9.30 service here at Christchurch is built on engaging with that experience when it occurs within people's lives. Encouraging people to stay with that experience, not to dismiss it, and further develop their relationship with the God to whom we believe it's pointing. Now the problem, of course, as with all thin spaces or thin places, is that this sense of God is fleeting. Not least because the same little baby or child who's opened our eyes to God's reality so wonderfully, well, they don't always carry on being the perfect vehicle for God's presence, do they? And once sleepless nights kick in and tantrums and that sort of thing, parents can often think the last thing that this child is doing is witnessing the presence of God. 
And that was basically the problem with the temple in Jerusalem. The place itself did a good enough job of representing the meeting point between heaven and earth. The problem was not really so much with the building. The problem was with the people. That's why in books like Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, you get a combination of God's ideal for the temple. You get wonderful passages in Isaiah about the temple being uh, the place of God's presence and all the nations coming to Jerusalem. That's why you get those pictures side by side with the most dire portrayals of what Jerusalem and its people had actually become. You get these two pictures side by side and you think, well, how does one relate to the other? You get the same contrast in the book of Isaiah between these visions of the perfect Davidic king that God had promised to one day send and then in a passage right next to it, you get reality about how bad the Davidic kings of Isaiah's day had become. Now, during Isaiah's time, around the middle of the 8th century BC, the ideal was enough to make Isaiah believe that however bad things got, Jerusalem, the temple, and the Davidic line would always be protected by God. But by a hundred years later, the prophet Jeremiah was very clear that people's sin meant that both Jerusalem and the temple and the Davidic monarchy would end up facing God's judgment and being destroyed. And that's basically what we see, the fulfilment of that, in those passages that were read to us earlier by Rob. Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, a week before Easter, and he was hailed as king. The people shouted, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They were aware that they were welcoming a Davidic king. And what did Jesus then do? Well, the last thing that people expected. One of his earliest actions was to go to the temple, the sacred place of God's presence, supposedly, and he proclaimed God's judgment upon it. The court of the Gentiles, as I said earlier, was meant to symbolise the space being reserved for non-Jews, for Gentiles, to worship God when they were drawn into his presence by seeing how the people of Israel lived. But instead, that court of the Gentiles was full of money changers. It was full of people making money out of selling sacrifices to people. And Jesus' words, when he proclaimed God's judgment upon the temple, are really significant. Look at the words that Jesus spoke now. Is it not written, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That all nations bit shows that at the basis of Jesus' critique is what the people of Israel had done to the very space that was meant to represent that the Gentiles, the nations, were welcome into God's presence. And what had happened instead? But you've turned it, Jesus said, into a den of thieves. Jesus' action in the temple is relatively well known. The stories either side of it, of the fig tree, often perplex people quite a lot. Either side, and you will have uh, heard this in the passage, either side of Jesus going into the temple and doing that, we get this strange episode with the fig tree. Jesus curses this fig tree for having no fruit. It could look a very odd, a very bad-tempered and petulant action on Jesus' part, but of course it's intended to be symbolic. The tree without fruit 
It represented Israel's inability to represent God's presence in the world, to bear the fruit that Israel was meant to bear. And Jesus' cursing of that fig tree showed the judgment that was therefore coming upon Israel as a result. And it is sobering, but very necessary, for us to think about the equivalent of this today. Up and down the same country where the Celts discovered their thin places and where Christians then later built countless churches, many of those church buildings are now almost empty. Now, people still associate those church buildings with a certain spiritual presence. People still can sort of pick up on that sometimes when they visit these places. It's why quite often people want churches retained. They don't want to see them completely depart and just be flattened and done away with. People are quite often rather attached to buildings that represent that connection with God. But the thing that really witnesses to God's presence is when those who belong to churches form a community reflecting God's presence by the way in which we live. When we show love and care for one another. And when we in particular make clear that that love is for everyone. And that was the crucial thing that the Jerusalem and the temple of Jesus' day was falling down upon. They weren't bad at loving one another, they were patchy at that, but they certainly weren't good at loving those beyond Israel. Now, maintaining our buildings and our grounds is important, and we work hard at that here at Christchurch. But the most important thing that we can do is to maintain ourselves as a community, as a living, multicolored temple of God's presence. That is the most important maintenance that we need to do of this church. Looking after the buildings is important and right, but it's maintaining ourselves as a community. A community that reflects the reality of God and therefore draws more and more people into his presence. That's why the fantastic welcome that the, uh, the Aston family gave us this morning as we entered into church is so important. Thanks PJ and Emma and Matthew and Nathan. That's why supporting one another in the joys but also the difficulties and the sorrows of our lives is so important as well as a church. But it's essential that we try and do this for everyone rather than just our friends, rather than just those people here at church who we particularly connect with because we've got children the same age or because they're people uh, like us. The thing that marks out a church is when there is care for everyone without exception, particularly those people who are really quite different from us in lots of ways. That's when the power that is church is really unleashed because that is unheard of. That's unique. You don't get that anywhere else. You only get it within the church when it's operating as it should be. So that's the challenge for us. Do we look out for new people at this church and really welcome them? Do we let those people know? We don't have to overwhelm them. Not everyone is uh, <laughs> grateful for an absolute swamping. But do people feel really welcome that they really, want, really wanted at this church? Do we look out for people and really welcome them? You see, the lounge out there 
That's really, in many ways, our court of the Gentiles. That's the symbolic statement, that lounge out there, that this church is seeking to welcome everyone. And that's why so many activities out in the lounge are specifically designed to welcome people. So the Great Vine Lunch, which takes place next Sunday, once a month, and uh, people get a fantastic meal, and they get a welcome, and they get fun, and it's designed to do exactly what I've been talking about this morning. But also our widows group, Half Shares, which now meets twice a month, uh, on a Tuesday once a month, and then on a Saturday afternoon once a month. That's precisely what it's intended to do. Men behaving dadly, meeting once a month on Saturday mornings. Have you gone to the next one? Yeah. And the cinema club, which is also once a month. There's also a children's cinema uh, club as well. That's what they're trying to do. And in the past, our night shelter and so on. And the Explorers Hall in the newer building, when that's used for things like toddlers on a Thursday and bumps and babies on a Tuesday, that's trying to represent that as well. But like the temple, those symbols will be empty ones if we're not a people, a community, embodying that welcoming presence of God. And if we don't do that, then like so many other churches in this country, we'll eventually fade into obscurity. Now that can sound a rather depressing message, especially on Mothering Sunday, when amongst other things we remember the church as our mother. But it isn't a depressing message when we remember that God didn't just come, to, that Jesus didn't just come to bring God's judgment upon the temple in Jerusalem, he came to replace it. Jesus himself came to be the fulfilment of that mysterious promise that God had made all those years before about building David a house. About building David a house that would transcend a simply physical building. We talk about a house in terms of a dynasty, a family, don't we? And it was the family of David, supremely the son of David in Jesus, who was going to embody that presence of God on earth. Jesus came to be the temple in person. That was demonstrated by everything that Jesus did. When he did his healings, that demonstrated the presence of God. When he did his exorcisms, when he drove out evil spirits, that demonstrated the presence of God. So did his other miracles, and supremely, so did his sacrificial death on the cross. And what the New Testament says is that when we're joined to Jesus, that presence of God flows from him into his people so that the church becomes the temple of God's Holy Spirit. That's why our regular worship in this church is so important. The idea is that as we go on being joined to God through Jesus Christ, so we receive more and more of God's presence within us, what's known as God's Holy Spirit, and so that we reflect that presence more and more to a world that desperately needs to receive hope and welcome. A few weeks ago, Storm Eunice took place, didn't it? And there was an enormous tree in my garden which came crashing down. And it had stood there for years and years, just behind the east window of that church, just out there. But it turned out to be diseased, meaning that storm fairly easily knocked it over. 
Now, it fell, as some of you will already know, in the only way it could have done not to cause catastrophic damage. It could have fallen straight through that east window. It could have sliced my house in half and me with it. There is a member of this church called Jill East who's amazing in her prayer, and she prayed that morning of the storm that no damage would come to Christchurch or its members. So I do wonder what would have happened if Jill East hadn't been praying, what would have happened as we might not have those wonderful east windows anymore. But actually, we can take it as a sign. Rather like Jesus' cursing of that fig tree, which also withered and presumably fell, we can take this as a sign and a warning. You see, there are lots of other trees around Christchurch still. And around this time of year, of course, lots of blossom starts appearing on them, showing that they're alive and well. But let's make sure that joined to Jesus Christ, the Son of David, we here at Christ Church form a living temple of God's presence in New Morden. Let's make sure that we really are joined to Jesus and all that uh, life within Jesus, that resurrection life, is flowing into us as a church so that we produce the fruit that we're meant to, unlike that fig tree that Jesus cursed. We are meant to be a living, embodied temple of God's presence. We're meant to produce the fruit that demonstrates God's presence and that therefore draws others further towards him. And if we do that, then we will as the church be a true and living symbol of God's presence. We'll be witnessing to him, we'll be drawing others into his presence so that his reality, his living presence, transforms more and more lives. We're called to be the temple of God, and let's pray now that he can help us do that. Let's pray. Father God, it's an enormous calling that you've given us to embody your presence within this church. And we pray that you direct each one of us and all of us as a community together into the ways that we can do that more effectively. Guide us, Lord God, to the ways in which you want us to witness to your presence, to your reality, and particularly to the truth that your love is for everyone, for all nations. We ask that you guide us in this and help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.